Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Popular Music podcast. I'm your host, Richard Schur. In this podcast, I speak with Randall Doan, the author of Stealing All Transmissions, A Secret History of the Clash. Doan is the Assistant Dean of Studies at Oberlin University. His book examines how the clash came to popularity in the United States, aided by freeform FM DJs and rock critics. Our conversation explores punk music, 1970s FM radio, and the role of rock journalism. Hello. Hi, Rich. How's it going? Good. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you. Well, good. We're excited to have you on the podcast. Um, why don't you tell uh, me a little bit about yourself and how you decided to write this book? Sure. Well, I grew up in Stockton, California, and I went to school out there. And then in 1995, I left for New York, where I did my graduate studies. And along the way, I was always a big music fan. I wrote quite a bit um, for academic publications on various subjects of music and illegal file sharing among them. And um, that's how I ended up stumbling across you know, this odd object. It was this lengthy MP3, basically the Guns of Brixton bootleg from September 21st, 1979 at the Palladium in New York which was simulcast on WNEW-FM, which was the last of the freeform rock stations in New York. And my tastes typically um, favor studio albums over live albums. But I went back to this a few years later, and I started to think about the title of this MP3. And I thought, okay, The Clash, who have very little support from either you know their UK or US label at this point, they're coming into New York, and they're doing a two-night um, stint at the Palladium, which seats 3,000, okay? And they're being broadcast live on WNEW, which is the last of the Freeform stations. And the two basic rules of Freeform FM radio were no punk and no disco. And um, I started to think, well, how, did, how could this have possibly happened? I mean, when other bands from the U.K. made their... Uh, debuts in New York. They played The Bottom Line, which seats 400, or believe it or not, The Police on their first tour of the U.S. played CBGB. So um, I just started to think about how, you know, what were the conditions that led to this, this moment? And I started, you know, scratching the surface and realized that um, this was also the night that Penny Smith, or allegedly, Penny Smith took the photo of Paul Simon and smashing his bass on stage at the Palladium. So I knew there was a there was a good story here, and I got lucky. I you know, this was I started doing research on this in in two thousand eight, I guess, and I tried to pitch it as an article at first, and then uh, expanded into the book over the last uh, few years. Well, why don't we uh, like just take a moment to describe who are the Clash and why they're so significant as a band? Well, that, that's, a, that's a long question. There's a lot of good question to it, and I think it comes with a long answer. But um, the class gets started when um, Mick Jones, guitarist and, uh, and vocalist, he teams up with Tony James initially, who goes on to form uh, Generation X with uh, Billy Idol. But they part ways, and he teams up with Paul Simonon initially, and 
Terry Chimes and Keith Levine, who ended up joining John Lydon in uh, Public Image Limited. And in 1976, I believe the first time was April or, or May, they decide they want to recruit or steal Joe Strummer from the 101ers, a pub rock band uh, in the London area. And they're being managed at this point by Bernie Rhodes, who helps with the um, the courtship of Joe Strummer. And yeah, so they, they're a quintet at first, and they kick Keith Levine out of the band. And just within a month of the release of their debut album, The Clash, in April 77, uh, Terry Chimes leaves, and they uh, team up with Topper Heaton, who is an absolutely amazing drummer. So Paul Simon on bass, Joe Strummer on vocals and rhythm guitar and um yeah and topper heaton behind the drum kit and their significance well um i think that you know rob Criscow in, in my book noted it quite well he said you know there are a few bands that are both uh aesthetically effective and politically effective and i think the class are really good about that from from the beginning really to the end and i i do consider the end to be um, combat rock. Um, at that point, um, Copper Heaton is gone when the, once they're touring in support of combat rock. And um, then they kicked Mick Jones out of the band. And for me, that, that is the end of the band. They did go on to release one more album with uh, adding two, um, I guess, two or three new players. I can't remember the end that closely. But um, but yeah, I mean, they, they their debut album is in April 77, which is totally amazing. Uh, their second album, Give Enough Rope, is November 78, which has a number of great songs on it. And they teamed up with uh, Sandy Perlman for that, who had great um, success. Well, not success, but uh, great notoriety, I guess, in producing The Dictators. First couple albums of a proto-punk band out of New York that um, played CBGBs and Max's and other places around there. And then, um, you know, the album that I focus mostly on, which is London Calling, their third album, which comes out in December 79 in the UK and January of 80 in the US. And then a year later, uh, Sandinista, their triple LP, which, uh, you know, I think at that point, The Clash were a bit more determined to make the record company upset rather than um, impress their fans, perhaps. And then, um, yeah, the album Combat Rock. Uh, which came out in 82, which is, again, a really solid effort. I, I think people, um, you know, confuse or, you know, think that success and a quality album is often mutually exclusive. So when The Clash do uh, do well with combat rock, people people dismiss that a little, little too readily. I think there's some pretty amazing stuff on that album. So, yeah, and um, they grew, you know. They were a band that was quite restless and they were not afraid to um yeah draw in new styles they were blessed by the fact that um you know they had a real curiosity in the black atlantic sounds and sounds coming out of the caribbean and how those took root um in the uk and they did not they were not um didactic in that way in terms of their sound i think if you think about american punk and american uh, hardcore that sound is, uh, you know, pretty narrow sonically in many ways. And, um, yeah, the Clash were not about to risk, you know, self-parody 
in that regard. They were willing to grow and draw in all, on all sorts of influences. And I think that's um, that's perhaps is their uh, most amazing quality is how cosmopolitan a band they were in, you know, 1979, 1980. I think the only other band at that point that could really, you know, make that claim would be the Talking Heads with their work on Fear of Music and Remain in Light. So, and we take that for granted now in the rather omnivorous <laughs> music culture of the 21st century, but back then it was pretty, uh, pretty distinct. So, so one of the, the questions I think that, that sort of pops up is the Clash is seen as a punk band, but it seems like they kind of maybe along with Talking Heads, but maybe some other bands, maybe kind of changed what punk was about. Can you maybe situate them within the punk scene of the uh, early to mid-1970s? You mean in terms of what are they listening to and what their influences are at this point, or how they're trying to define their sound initially? Well, I think a a little bit of both. I mean, uh, you were talking about their politics, and it seems like their politics were maybe different than like the Ramones or even I think their politics was even probably different than the Sex Pistols. So how do they differ? Well, I think that uh, the class and their, um, you know, with the influence of Bernie Rhodes, there's certainly a, a Marxist element there. There's also just a, an anti-boredom politics. I think there's also the politics of their performance, which, you know, drawing on um, the legacy of, Iggy Pop and Sex Pistols and New York Dolls too. Um, you know they were uh, they were not out there to try to convince people to like them, but just to get people to hear them on their own terms. And you know those guys they knew what they were talking about in terms of life on the dole and and the recession that had hit um, Britain at that time, and also just you know the rise of the National Front and and being anti-fascist and uh, progressive and anti-boredom, I think that they, you know, constructed a pretty amazing um, set of political ideals, which, of course, were difficult to sustain. And there were contradictions there, as, as Joe Strummer was uh, ready to admit. And, um, you know, they were trying to do something in terms of developing real populist aesthetic. I mean, you couldn't play, you couldn't pick up a guitar and start playing like Eric Clapton or um, Jimmy Page or uh, Pete Townsend. I mean, that that took a long, long time. That was, you know, the virtuosity school of thought. And these guys were the, you know, former band then learned how to play uh, school of thought. So, um, yeah, we're just reminding people what rock and roll's origins were and the virtues of, of brevity, which... Um, you know, it's something they end up, well, departing from a bit, certainly with, with I mean, a triple album and some of the five-minute five songs on, on Sandinista, but still, I mean, they were, um, yeah, they thought that, I mean, they didn't want to be pigeonholed as punk, too. I mean, they grew out of that, and I think, um, you know, and, and that's, I mean, think about Sleater Kinney, for example. They've got a new album coming out right early next year, and these are, you know, women who started recording in the mid '90s, and now, 20 years later, they've had a family, and they're still going to go out there and make music. Yeah. Right. And I think that Corinne Tucker's band is totally amazing in this regard, in terms of what it means to not fall into self-parody, and how can you grow and still say something um, worth listening to? Yeah. So. 
Well, um, how do you go about researching a band like The Clash um, when they haven't put out an album in, out in 30 years? Uh, by the time you started researching this, Joe Strummer had passed away. So what did you do to, to, to research them? Well, um, I mean, as, as you probably know, there are two amazing biographies uh, on The Clash, Passion is a Fashion by uh, Pat Gilbert and Marcus Gray's uh, last gang in town. There's Chris Salowick's uh, biography of Joe Strummer, a really, really good book, Two Redemption Song. And, um, you know, these were all done from a UK perspective, okay? In part because that's what the, the resources they had available. So when I started um, thinking about this, and again, my background is, is in sociology, so I wasn't doing, um, you know, a biography of the, of the class so much, but trying to figure out what were the um, antecedent conditions that led to the class arriving at the Palladium and, and how were these the result of, you know, big social forces and determined actors in the form of DJs, rock journalists, and promoters, and of course the folks at the, at the label too. So the first thing I did was I ended up... Um, tracking down who was at WNEW in the mid-70s. And one of those figures was Richard Neer, um, who wrote a book called FM, The Rise and Fall of Rock Radio. And so I started there and then got a few more names. And when I called, um, and I guess I'd emailed him. And I mean, this is the amazing part of, of doing research, you know, now rather than, let's say, 20 years ago or even maybe even 15 as I emailed him and I waited two weeks and sent him a reminder email. And then my phone rang an hour later and it was Richard Neer. I had, you know, I wasn't set up to do an interview or anything. I didn't have my questions, but I, I must've done okay because he helped me out and, and referred me to a couple people. And then um, I talked to Meg Griffin and she opened up her Rolodex because we had such a great conversation. And I talked to uh, Joe Piasek and he turned me on to Harvey Leeds. And then I talked to Susan Blonde and it was, it was really great. Um, in that regard. So it was old fashioned in the sense of, you know, just doing interviews in this regard. And then some of the archive work that I did was, was just fantastic. And this is, you know, for the, the 2014 edition of the book, I found some amazing things at the rock and roll hall of fame uh, in nearby Cleveland. I live about 40 minutes from, from Cleveland. And there's something there called the James Brawley collection. And I, haven't found out much about James Brawley, unfortunately, but by way of Lenny Kay, who used to play guitar, of course, for Patti Smith, um, James Brawley had accumulated, I think, over 400 audio cassettes done either off the air, um, recording shows or live shows um, in, you know, the the CBGBs and, and Max's scene. Uh, probably stuff at the Palladium too. And then also, um, I mean, just all sorts of crazy stuff. And, and this was donated to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And yeah, I don't know if James Brawley was a sound guy who would just plug into the board at these shows. Or I know some of the stuff he just recorded off the air, but he was a real, you know, a real archivist in this regard. And the folks at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame were great. You know, I just asked them to put three or four of these on uh, or make these available, and they put them on CD for me, and I went, you know, I couldn't take it home with me, but I was able to listen there and do some transcriptions and whatnot of uh, shows hosted by David Byrne and Lou Reed, 
Frank Zappa, among others. So it was, it was quite fantastic to get into that stuff. And then um, and they've also got a great collection there of, you know, issues of punk and trouser press, New York rocker, among other things. And some of that stuff you can find on online, too, if you've got access to the rocksbackpages.com archive, which, is you know, that's just fantastic. Um, so, yeah, it was, uh, I guess, old fashioned in the sense that it was looking at the original um, print materials. And then luckily, you know, by way of the James Brawley collection, hearing that stuff that actually happened both live and on the radio. And then, yeah, talking to people too. But there's a lot of, there's so much stuff out there on the web. It's pretty amazing what, um, what people will hold on to and then scan and post on their blogs and stuff, you know, old, um, you know, I guess concert billings for the Academy of Music or the Palladium and bottom line and the rest. So yeah, it was, uh, it was fun. And the, the whole collection of old billboard magazines are, are on uh, Google Books, too. So that, that was a great resource, too. Oh, this might be a touch of an aside, but what was Lou Reed like as a DJ? Oh, um, well, <laughs> he, was, he was quite eclectic. And, he, and this was, uh, I think, um, I mean, Lou Reed was a dark character, as you can probably imagine. Um, but he played... Some great stuff from the 50s. Um, he played the song that he did with uh, with John Cale with the Primitives. With a, I'm going to blank on the name. Is that the uh, Ostrich? The Ostrich, thank you. Yes, I can see it in my head. Uh, I played some Hank Ballard, um, played some Garland Jeffries. Garland Jeffries was uh, the best man at one of his weddings. Um, and he played some fun called Sister Suki? I I, yeah, I'd have to go back and, and look. Um, but And he was determined to be, I mean, you know, in between songs, he was determined to be the, the shocking Lou Reed and, um, you know, a real contrarian on the air. He said some rather unflattering things, but also some very amusing things, too. So and some of that's transcribed in the book. So that was fun. Well, one of the things that I, I just found fascinating about the books dealing all transmissions is how you describe uh, what's happening in FM radio with freeform uh, freeform uh, format. So could you maybe talk what freeform format is and kind of what what was this battle that was happening in FM radio? Well, uh, freeform gets started in the um, mid to late '60s. Some people suggest that the origins are at WBAI. I look. Uh, toward the West Coast at uh, uh, KMPX, and then of course at uh, WNEW FM in in New York City, and it's changing from the you know early six I guess fifties to the early sixties DJ, the hysterical DJ, who you know we've seen I think um, uh, I guess represented perhaps on in American Graffiti and other films where it's, you know, the tempo is go, 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 go. And they're talking over the music. Everything's very, all the sets are very short. And with FM, um, you know, the sonic quality is higher. Bands like the Beatles and Stones and the Who are, are making new demands in terms of their, the attention span of, of listeners. And the DJs are, are reflecting that they're, you know, they're playing songs by the set and, um, you know, doing long raps, often political raps, um, in between um, the sets that they're doing, and it's uh, yeah, it's much more of a 
dare I say, marijuana culture rather than a than a speed culture or an uppers culture. I mean, think about you know Elvis Presley and how he and his bandmates um, endured the crazy touring they did. Um, but uh, but yeah, so then. Um, you know, then the market research really starts happening in full in the 70s, and people are realizing that uh, that the um, that the revenue generated by FM is not nearly as much as it should be, and so there starts to be different forms of DJ discipline in terms of um, you know making sure that these the between song raps are controlled and more purposeful, and also automation. You know, they found out that um, you didn't need a live body there. If you could just get somebody to, in a matter of 20 minutes, say what songs they'd play and then get somebody else to come in and play them and, um, you know, record, I guess, maybe even different versions of the weather. I don't know. I haven't heard those segments, but it was really about automation coming in and, and controlling labor. I mean, again, Capital is always using technology to discipline labor or restructure the labor process, and, and radio was no different. Although, again, there were some places that, that held on longer than others, and WNEW was certainly one of those places. So uh, if I'm understanding correctly, it seemed like The Clash benefited um, from the freeform radio, at least in New York, it seemed like, um, in ways that maybe were a little bit surprising. Uh, can you maybe talk about how The Clash benefited from freeform radio? Oh, sure. Yes. No, it's a good question because it, it does seem a bit contradictory because uh, the two basic rules for the format of, um, of Freeform come, you know, 1976, 1977, were no punk and no disco. OK, that that was a rather inclusive uh, format and people be playing. Pardon me. Um, you know, Johnny Cash alongside Pink Floyd, alongside Steppenwolf, alongside all sorts of stuff. And um, and yet there were some DJs who came of age in New York City, um, including Joe Piasek, Pam Murley at WLIR, and then Meg Griffin, who uh, got her start at WRNW in Briarcliff Manor, working alongside Howard Stern, of all people. And then she, and they were she and Joe they met at uh, at WRNW. They were going very concerned with the direction of radio and how things were coming, you know, the soft rock movement of the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac and, and Crosby, Stills and Nash. And, and they thought that uh, radio could be a little bit more lively. And so when Meg made her way over to WNEW, she was doing fill-ins on the weekends. She started playing the bands that were, um, you know, making the rounds in, uh, you know, the Maxes and, and, and CBGB scene, and and that um, so they had some of that vinyl, and they had the New York Dolls, of course, and they had all sorts of fun stuff. And with the Clash, it was an odd situation because their debut album was not released in the states that CBS had deemed it too noisy for American airwaves, but you could get it on import. And the folks at Gem Records, who did distribution uh, to many of the New York stations, they were happy to upset the, um, I guess, the domestic schedules in, in the U.S. Of, of releases and whatnot. And so you had this odd situation where DJs were playing stuff that wasn't supposed to be on the air. And folks like Robert Criscow and Richard Goldstein, uh, Tom Carson, Alan Betrock, and the rest of these characters who were writing for 
uh, Soho Weekly News and New York Rocker and the Village Voice, they really, really adored the Clash. They were one of the, you know, the first key bands um, that these guys fall in love with during the rise of the punk era. And so they really did have, dare I say, boots on the ground, a real sort of from below movement in terms of building the fan base for the class in New York City. And it was, again, folks like Meg Griffin and Pam Murley who really saw continuity um, between what the class were doing and what, you know, Buddy Holly and the early rockers in the 50s were doing. So, um, and and the class, you know, made that explicit in in some of their songs and the covers of, you know, I Fought the Law, for example, and it was really done in that that rockabilly style. So, um, so yeah, they had a, a real affinity for the early music and some of those DJs, you know, were arguing with their um, with their fellow DJs over what belonged on freeform radio. I mean, these guys who were avant-garde in the sixties had kind of turned rear guard in the mid seventies and were not too cool with what the youth were embracing uh, circa 1977. Well, one thing that's interesting, and I, I don't know if it's relevant um, was I thought it was interesting that it was two women who played such an important role. Uh, my own, uh, image, which might be faulty, is I think of radio as being a fairly male-dominated industry. And so I thought that was interesting that those two women played such a key role. Yes, and uh, Jane Hamburger, too. Um, I, I don't want to forget mentioning Jane Hamburger, but yeah, I think it was... Yeah, so that's a really good question. You know, Pam Murley, when she was at WLIR on Long Island, you know, when I asked her, was she the only full-time um, woman DJ there? you know, circa 1975, 1976, I think that's when she started. Um, she said, boy, I, I guess I was, you know, and Meg Griffin did not make that a big part of our interview as well. I do wish I would have pressed a bit harder on those questions and hopefully there'll be a, you know, a good feminist critique of the book since I, I, I address them more. So I guess as craft workers, um, rather than, than women workers in, in this field. Um, but yeah, it was a, a male-dominated field, and in some ways it makes perfect sense that women were willing to um, you know, introduce punk because of the type of music that the male DJs were so supportive of was so male and, had, um, and, and so masculine in terms of really this romantic almost 19th century vision of, of what the artist was supposed to be in terms of, you know, um, sitting around waiting for their muse to arrive and, and, you know, just thinking about how everything was about composition rather than interpretation in the classic rock for, um, format and how, you know, the visions were grandiose. I mean, they were in some ways, you know, a tribute to the multi-movement composition forms of the Western concert music world, and that in some ways punk, with its brevity and emphasis on interpretation and whatnot, rather than than comp composition, were rebelling against this version of masculinity and, and masculine aesthetics. So I think it makes perfect sense that women were playing a, a big role in um, you know breaking punk on the airwaves stateside. Um, a little bit earlier, you had talked about the role of the rock critics, and one thing that maybe surprised me a little bit was just how positive the rock critics were about The Clash. Um, I've enjoyed reading Lester Bangs talk about Lou Reed, and it seems like Lester Bangs made a career out of trashing Lou Reed. Um, 
especially towards the end. And so, um, describe that relationship between the clash and their, and their critics. Well, I think those critics, um, you know, Lester Bangs among them, Robert Crisco. I mean, these are two guys who, um, you know, really did have faith in a type of, you know, liberal democracy, if not something more radical, uh, a real populist aesthetic in some ways. I mean, Chris Gow is very inclusive um, in, in his tastes. He made it a, a point to, you know, correct me when we were talking in our, in our interview. And he said, you know, I'm not a genreist. So, um, you know, that's the class, again, just was doing a nice renaissance of rock and roll that did not have the artistic pretensions that some of the other, um, you know, musicians who were doing so well at that point. And, and that's, again, there just, that's that anti-virtuosity in some way, at least to, you know, to get things rolling for them. I mean, Mick Jones is certainly a capable guitarist and Topper Heaton was one of the most uh, amazing drummers of that era too. So, um, so yeah, they were happy to champion what they were doing. And I think that, um, you know, there's, I, I think Lester too, especially when he did that piece for NME, when he went on tour with the class early on, you know, he was so impressed that the class would actually come out and hang out with, you know, with their fans, that they were not interested in that, um, you know, huge divide that had grown between um, fans and the musicians, in part out of necessity, because if you make yourself available to 50,000 fans, you're likely to be in real physical danger. Um, but, you know, this was not the stadium rock set, right? This was not Madison Square Garden or, or much, much larger. Some of the festivals that were happening in the in the States were the big tours of the Stones and the Who, among others. Um, so, yeah, I think they were happy to... Uh, to get behind that. And they like the, you know, they like the danceability. They like the, the populism, the more democratic ethos of the sound. And, um, you know, the clash, again, they had, they had something to say about what was going on. And it's, um, it reminded folks of the possibilities of rock and roll. One of the things that you had mentioned was that when the clash started out, they were kind of DIY kind of band, but then when you describe the recording sessions, especially what happened on their second album, it seems like um, they became a little bit more of virtuosos, especially uh, their bassists. So you can maybe talk about their uh, their recording session, especially uh, for their second album, and then for London Calling. Sure, yeah, that, that's a good contrast. There's so with um, with Sandy Perlman coming in to manage the Give Him Enough Rope session. Um, I mean, there's, you've got to remember that, you know, Paul Simonon in for the first album, I mean, he had the, the notes painted on, on his bass frets. Okay. Um, so he was really, you know, getting things started um, from a very rudimentary level, but yeah, it was a very exacting process um, with Sandy Perlman at the helm and, and uh, Corey Stasiak. And, um, you know, these guys were treating, the clash as if they were in some ways uh, blue oyster cult or the who in terms of, you know, getting every note. Right. And that was, that was not uh, Paul's um, that's not where Paul's affinities lay. You know, they, he was more about banging it out and, and getting it down as, as best he could. And, 
I think Mick Jones ended up doing a real nice tutorial, though. I mean, he was very fascinating with the recording process, but it was, I think, taxing on, on all the band members in terms of just doing take after take after take after take. And so when it came time for London Calling, well, let me just say one more thing. Um, you know, Sandy Perlman bragged that on giving up rope, given up rope, there were more, what was it, more layers of guitar, more guitars per square inch than any other recording in, in, in rock and roll. So um, other people would see that as a liability, of course. Some of the critics really took the class to task on that question. But I also think we have to remember that, you know, the the British critics love to eat their own, right? That they they they're not so upset that the album is bad. They just um, they're sort of sharpening their knives, waiting for that second album, just so they could savage it. Just you would dare do a second album at some level. Bless your hearts. Um, but then when it came time for London Calling, you know these guys were pretty much left on their own. They found that the space at rehearsal rehearsals um, in Camden Town. And it was the four of those guys showing up, um, the Baker, their backline roadie, and, and Johnny Green, another roadie. They were there, you know, during rehearsals. And, um, you know, the Baker sat there with the, with the four-track recorder, and he would, you know, make recordings each day and then mix them down and then send, send the guys home with the tapes. And those were what are known as the vanilla tapes, which came out with the uh, 25th anniversary, I believe, of the of London Calling uh, release, and um, you know, so those guys really were sort of back to to doing it on their own, and um, and yeah, I think they they did some amazing work, and they, it was very open and free in terms of where the influencers were coming from at that point. So I mean, you know, they were doing reggae, they were doing rockabilly, they were doing rock steady. It's um, quite quite an eclectic and I, as I say, you know, a cosmopolitan album, which has, you know, still stands the test of time quite well. I think Rolling Stone, I read that this is in their, their top 10 albums of, uh, you know, of the 500 best albums of all time. And, um, and I think the only one released after 1978 that made it that high up. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, but they still did some amazing work, I think, with, with Bill Price as the engineer uh, once they started to do, um, you know, everything in order with with the inspirations of of Guy Stevens, who, um, you know, was was a bit of a madman. But I do think he was inspiring, too, in the initial stages of those recordings to loosen things up and um, and not worry about getting it perfect. But, you know, certainly perfect being the the enemy of the good. In, in this regard, when it comes to rock and roll and especially London Calling. So why did the clash ultimately wind up breaking up? I think that's, I mean, that's a, another good question, but another question that requires a, a bit of a, a lengthy answer to do it justice. But I think it starts with, in some ways, their politic, right? And the, the Joe, who was pretty much you know the leader of, of the band at this, I think, you know, following... London calling him. I do think that Mick might have had the the upper hand in some ways um, during the London calling sessions. And Mick was working seven days a week at this point. The baker was bringing him into the studio every single day, and the guy, other guys in the band, were there. I think five to six days a week. But um, but be, because of what Mick learned following, um, you know, 
Perlman's lead on Give Enough Rope, he could basically be the engineer with Bill Price's help at this point. So Topper's having trouble with his health. He, you know, he had an appetite uh, for certain substances that um, got him in trouble, as you can imagine, and um, and among those being heroin. And they kept kept trying to keep the band together at a very rigorous pace. Okay, and this is where I think the political angle comes in for perhaps as far as Joe Strummer was concerned, you know, taking a vacation or taking time off would be too petit bourgeois or something. And they needed to keep their, you know, workers ethos alive in this regard. And so this was a band that just did so much in terms of touring and then albums and, and the rest. I mean, my gosh, between what, um, was it, was it December 1979 and and May of 82, I mean, they put out six, you know, six full albums, basically. I mean, if you think about the triple album, the double album, and um, and a couple singles in between and going up to Combat Rock. I mean, nobody else was putting out the stuff at that clip, especially at, you know, at such a high level of quality for most of that stuff, too. And, you know, had they taken a break, then maybe Topper could have got clean and got back on the road. They, they would have lasted a little bit longer, maybe. But they did fire topper because he was you know too unreliable at this point they brought back terry chimes on drums excuse me and then um you know at this point um after their uh their gig at the us festival that was the last gig they played with um with mick jones that's may 1983 and Mick was Mick was a tough character, you know. They referred to him, I think, affectionately, but also cuttingly, as Rock and Roll Mick. And he he was he could be a bit of a diva. He wouldn't show up on time. Um, I mean, my favorite s- story about Mick was actually on that tour um, in September 1979. They go up to Toronto, and after the gig in Toronto, Mick refuses to get back on the bus until somebody goes out and scores a bag of marijuana. It was just like, you know, a classic sit down strike. No, I'm not, you know, I'm not getting back um, on the assembly line until something else happens and two fans oblige. But that was Mick, you know, and, and he and Joe were at loggerheads over this. And and um, I mean, he even missed some of the, the mixing of uh, Combat Rock because Gil Johns, who had, um, you know, produced Who's Next, among many other amazing albums he had glenn johns perhaps i can't remember off the top of my head um you know he had come into the mixing in the morning and they told mick to be there and he wasn't and so that that helped stem the tide i guess um so to speak but uh but mick was difficult and and joe and paul finally kicked mick out of his own band i mean it was mick's band I mean, mick mick was the the real uh force behind the formation and I think um, of the musical direction of the class. And, um, and after that, you know, it was, I think it was done. I mean, they did some, um, they did one album called cut the crap, which I, I've only listened to in snippets. It's, um, it's quite sad about what happens musically once Mick leaves. And I think that, um, you know, Bernie Rhodes um, assumes a, a greater, a degree of control now that Mick is gone. Mick and Bernie never really got on um, 
that well after 1979. And, um, and yeah, it's, it just, it was hard. I think. I mean, it's hard to sustain that energy. It's hard to sustain political relevance for, for years and years and years. And, um, and I think at that point that the class did risk sort of, um, you know, running a, running ashore on the ground of, of self parody at that point. I think there was a, a nice thing that they did with, with Bernie Rhodes sending them out busking. I mean, he basically said, okay, you know, empty your wallets and grab your guitars and, and go make enough money for a hotel fare and food and the rest. And, and I can only imagine what, what that must have been like. But, uh, but yeah, and there's, um, there's a DVD out. I think it's called The Rise and the Fall of the Clash that documents that later period, um, you know, with, with, I think, due sentimentality and affection. But it, it, looks, it looks a bit rough. I think it was, it was rough on everybody. And then finally, Joe... Uh, called it quits and, um, you know, dissolve the band uh, later. But, um, but yeah, so I think that for, for me, once Mick Jones is gone, then, then the, the band is, is over. And, and I think it's pretty apparent in the music how, how key Mick was. And you can see that, I think, in the first Big Audio Dynamite album, too. I mean, I think that album is absolutely amazing. And that, that album stands up well over... 20 years time too. So, um, so yeah, that was, I mean, there, there were conflicts within the band certainly, and, and Mick didn't help his own case in this regard, but I think it was also a power struggle between, um, between Bernie Rhodes and Mick Jones and, and Joe and Paul sort of siding with, with Bernie, or at least if it wasn't conscious, then, uh, it was convenient. Well, this, this might be a little bit of a left field question, but if you could have put together maybe an EP or a soundtrack for your book, um, what songs have you wanted included from The Clash? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, White Man Hammersmith Palais, is, as Joe himself voted for, is, uh, is one of my favorites. I think that's Joe's favorite Clash song. I mean, there's so many great gems on London Calling. Um, boy, I mean, there's, let's see. I mean, Train in Vain, their, their first um, first track that, that makes the charts in the U.S. is, is one of my favorites. Charlie Don't Surf from Sandinista is a great one. Their cover of uh, of the Equals Police on My Back. That's Eddie Grant's uh, band from back in the day. That's a great tune. Um, let's see. Magnificent Seven, you know, one of their, their first forays into hip hop, I think, is, is quite great. Straight to Hell from Combat Rock is also quite amazing. Let me see. I think that'd be a pretty good soundtrack you've got there already. <laughs> so that'd be good. Well, um, we've taken up quite a bit of your time today. Um, maybe you could tell us what you're working on now. Well, I mean, much of what I'm doing is, is trying to secure reviews for the book, as, as you can imagine. Um, and uh, yes, that, that, that's taking up a bit of my time. I, um, I'm excited about actually the, San Francisco Giants being back in the World Series. I wrote, uh, I think it was an eight or ten thousand piece upon about the the 2010 season. Um, that you know, then they with them being in the World Series again in 2012, and and now in 2014 maybe needs to go back to. I need to go back to it and, and elaborate it a bit. But um, but the other thing I've been thinking about is, is the question of 
of whiteness and blackness and punk. And I think there, there's something more to be done there. I think that, um, you know, the class being very, uh, very articulate and very deliberate about, you know, being um, anti-fascist and pro progressive and, and, um, and as I noted in the book, you know, they were not in some ways, they, they faced a, a different type of burden perhaps than the bands around the CBGB scene. And that, um, you know, in terms of trying to find a new avenue or a new set of musical codes following, you know, rock in the 60s and 70s, um, people really, I guess, tried to find some ways to depart from the legacy of, of rhythm and blues and, um, and soul. And, and so and not because they were anti-black, but because they were looking for something new. And I think as you, if you think about the vocal styles coming out of punk with uh, Devo and, uh, you know, David Byrne of Talking Heads and, uh, David Thomas of Perubu. This was not a vocal style that you could go back and find in terms of the trajectory of, of Black American music, and the Clash also were were not keen on, on on following that, but they were in touch with again the influence of Caribbean music and especially Jamaican music as it took root and took form in the UK, and so they were always very in touch with with that question in terms of the influence of, of reggae and rocksteady on their tunes. And so I think there's something to be done there. There is of course the problem with, um, with the variety of punk that was overtly racist. And then, you know, the rebellion against that of, of sharp, the skinheads against racial prejudice movement in the eighties. But I think there'd be an interesting, uh, genealogy there. And, um, and yeah, I don't know if I'll tackle that as something as a written form or maybe something in terms of, a um, a talk to go with, um, you know, if I'm out talking about the book, but yeah, I think there's, there's, that's an interesting question that, um, that would be a nice lead up to, uh, or I guess prelude to Sasha Ferrer Jones. He did a piece in the New Yorker called, a, I think it was a paler shade of white, looking at the segregation of, of musical sounds and codes through American post-punk and, and indie music in the nineties and how that was really, um, you know, they were, there was not much comfort, I guess, with the black music traditions. I think if you think about grunge and whatnot, that it is pretty distinctive that Kurt Cobain is covering a lead belly tune on the uh, MTV Unplugged situation. You couldn't imagine Soundgarden or um, even Pearl Jam or other bands from that era making that same move because it just wasn't, um, it, I guess they were so either self-conscious or not conscious of uh, of the influence of black music on their music. We're trying to depart from that sound, if that, if that makes sense. It's a little raw, obviously, but I think uh, I think if I get to spend some more time thinking about it, there, there's something there to be done. So well, I think that would be a very exciting project. Um, oh, thank you so much for talking to us. Well, you're welcome. Thanks for uh, taking interest in stealing all transmissions. And um, yeah, I hope folks who listen to the podcast uh, enjoy this and um, yeah, take a look at the book. 
You've been listening to the New Books and Popular Music podcast with Richard Schur. I've been speaking with Randall Doan, the author of Stealing All Transmissions, A Secret History of the Clash. Thank you for listening.